Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In his new book, The Loneliest Americans, Jay Caspian Kang posits two Asian Americas, one populated by upper-middle-class people who have made rapid economic and educational strides, and another group of immigrants and refugees who are barely hanging on to the bottom of American society. The problem for Kang is that those empowered to speak for Asian Americans concentrate on their own class problems and not those of the working poor. Is there enough to unite these groups into a cohesive political unit? And no matter the answer, should anyone be trying to do so? That's coming up on Forum after this news. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Demographic labels are a double-edged sword. On one side, a bigger group, Latinos, Asian Americans, gives heft to political concerns. On the other, some terms may become so big that the connections between the people gathered under the banner are too tenuous to hold them together for any practical purpose. This is a debate we've been having endlessly in the Latin world, and so I was almost refreshed to find Jay Caspian Kang struggling with the affordances and restrictions of the term Asian American in his new book, The Loneliest Americans. Kang pushes and pulls on this theme through chapters on the Third World Liberation Front and other Asian student movements, the burning and looting of Korean stores during the 1992 L.A. riots, and an examination of the politically confusing misogyny of some online communities of Asian men. It's a wily, interesting, and intentionally provocative book. And here to fight with me and all of you out there, we have Jay Caspian King. Welcome to the show, Jay. Are, are we fighting? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm ready. So Asian American as a term didn't always exist. It has this specific history that you trace. Can you tell us where it originated and how it was used? Yeah, um, it started actually, you know, here in the Bay Area, um, not so far where I'm from where I'm sitting right now at a house in uh, on Hearst Avenue in Berkeley and some Asian students at the time who were trying to get involved in all the movements that were happening, right? The anti-war movement was happening. Black Panthers were starting to become active in Oakland. Um, there's the Chicano movement. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, it's the late 60s in Berkeley. Um, and they found that there wasn't a place for them, right? That they would try different groups and some of them would actually say, hey, you know, like maybe you should start your own thing. And so they got together at this house, as legend goes, and um, they came up with the term Asian American, right? Because before it was like Oriental or it was, you know, Japanese or, or Chinese. And uh, that term is the one that we use today. But, you know, its origins are in a very specific, you know, sometimes radical conception of, of what these people would be. Like, uh, you know, um, in one of the books that I read, it was described of 
by the people, you know, one of the people who was back there at the time, it was described as like, basically everyone, you know, all the others, right? <laughs> everyone who doesn't fit. So, um, and the idea was to try and join those people together in some sort of political movement. Now, you know, if you ask people today what Asian American is, like, I, you know, unless they're, unless they have studied this or unless they uh, are, you know, a scholar in this, I don't think that that's what they would say. Right. Yeah, it always had much more of that connotation of, you know, the, the Third World Liberation Front, you know, which was at SF State and is this sort of anti-colonial movement, but sort of inside the United States, right? I mean, it really had that flavor of 1960s radicalism. Right. And um, that was, you know, that was ultimately where a lot of these uh, early Asian Americans, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that as the people, but, you know, the people who had sort of classified themselves such politically, they did put a lot of their energy into, you know, the student movements at, at Cal and at, uh, and at SF State around trying to, get an ethnic studies program um, going, which I guess is relevant today in California, right? As of, uh, as of last week, because of yeah, the, that's the right. bill to, to, to have all high school students take ethnic studies. Yeah. Uh, at the same time in the 1960s, you kind of draw this line of discontinuity in American history in 1965 with the passage of the Hart Sellers Act. Uh, we actually have LBJ. We have a cut of uh, Lyndon Johnson introducing uh, this act. Let's hear that. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives or really add importantly to either our wealth or our power. So it's an amazing bill signing, right? LBJ <laughs> yeah. playing down this act, you know, it won't add right. to our wealth. It won't be, affect the lives of millions. You're sort of like, it's almost like an inversion of the classic bill introduction. But you actually note that this bill did change America in this huge way. Right. I mean, I, that, that clip is always so funny to me because I can't imagine, you know, signing something and just being, hey, listen, you know, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> this is this is just nonsense that we're doing because uh, we're trying to make some people happy. But yeah, no, he was wrong, you know, and, um, you know, I hate to say it, but the people at the time, you know, who were the opponents of the bill who were warning about like, you know, quote, floods of, of migrants coming from Asia um, in all parts of the world that they didn't want people to come from, you know, they were right, you know, billions and millions of people did come because of the 1965 uh, Immigration Act. And, um, you know, it, so yeah, tell us what that did. Tell, like, just give us like kind of the basics on how this changed immigration, like kind of before and after. So before 1965, you know, you have a, a starting in 1880, you know, in the, in the late 19th century with the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Um, before that, the Page Act. Uh, there's all sorts of restrictive laws um, on Asian immigration to the United States, and it was very, very hard to make it into the U.S. if you were Asian. Um, and most people either uh, came in through you know other means, or or they're like tiny little quotas starting in the middle of the 20th century that would allow in somewhere around 100 people a year, right, from each country. And, uh, you know, it was so restrictive that, like, let's say that you were like a Chinese person who grew up in South America, which is, you know, uh, not not common, but definitely happened. And you tried to immigrate to the United States, you would not be counted from the country that you're coming from there, you would just be counted as Chinese. So it's totally racialized, right? There's, there's, there's no other logic to it. And what the what the 1965 Immigration Act did is that it removed those quotas um, and it opened up immigration for you know thousands more of uh, people a year. 
um, starting in the early 1970s. Oh, you, you lost me? Lost you just for a second, but go, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, starting in the early 1970s, um, you know, a ton of people started to come. And then what they did was they, uh, they brought over their families because part of the 1965 Immigration Act also allowed for, you know, what is now called chain migration. And so you would have one person come over, they would stay here a while, and then they would bring over their families. And that, that's generally how, you know, so many Asian Americans are, are in the country today. So, you know, you kind of call attention to the effects of this migration on the country, not only just sort of in, in terms of demographic composition, but on really on the social position of the Asian people who came before and after the act. Like, what's that sort of central move of the book? Um, I'm sorry, one more time? Yeah, like that, just, that people who came before and people who came after kind of have a, a, just a different social position in the United States. Right. So uh, the first is that there's just many, 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 many more people who came post-1965, right? So the people who came before 1965 are a small number of people. Um, does not mean they're not important, but, you know, like they, they have been sort of dwarfed by the post-1965 immigrants. But also the people who came who were here before had lived in the United States for generations, right? Like they had, uh, they were either Japanese farm workers or they're, you know, people who could even trace their uh, lineage back to the gold rush or the or the railroads and you know because of that they had experiences with america like they could see how america dealt with them in a way that informed their politics and the way that they looked at the world and so you have like uh for example in the people who started the asian american term like the enjoyed third world uh liberation front you know some of them had been interned right like uh during during world war ii so it's a radically different way of seeing what the country can do to you. Like it's a radically different way of seeing the sweep of history. It is a deeper connection to the idea of America and the understanding of some of its shortfall, uh, shortcomings than people who just sort of arrive in, 19, in the 1970s and then set up shop and then, um, and then you know, perhaps like in generations, their children will see all of this. But, you know, the, that's not the population that we're talking about today. Like the, the population we're talking about today has extremely shallow roots in America. Hmm. And so you think because of that, they kind of can't grasp American oppression in the same way? Well, I don't know if it's a question of grasping American oppression. I think that, you know, that they have a different understanding of what America is, right? Like they, they, they still tend to have more, you know, capitalist ideas about, uh, and they still, I think, believe more in this sort of idea of the immigrant dream, right? Because, because they are immigrants and they are, they are recent, but I do. And I think that as a, as a result, you know, they tend to be a, a little le- uh, less political, like more, and they tend to, you know, uh, be, much more assimilationist in some sorts of ways. Now, that's, you know, part of the book is distinguishing between that population and, and then recent immigrants who live in enclaves and sort of, uh, you know, don't really have a connection to America. And, you know, for that, those people, like the, their politics are totally different. You know, they're mostly informed by uh, their homelands, right? So you, they're much more interested. Even my parents, when I was growing up, they're much more interested in politics in Korea than, than here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And what do you think their dream was for you here or for themselves? My parents? Yeah. Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they wanted me and my sister to be, you know, successful. But I don't know what they I don't think they do what successful means, you know. Um, and uh, I think they had very vague conceptions of what that could be. Right. And so 
Uh, I think that there's this idea that like immigrants come over, they go to the cities, they want to move to the suburbs and have like a white picket fence and, you know, two cars, whatever the, whatever the, whatever the story is. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think my parents knew what a white picket fence was (laughs) in 1979. You know, I don't think they knew what a suburb was in 1979. Right. And so it takes time, but like, and then, you know, the, the conception of what success is, is totally formed by the, the, the community that you're in and the experiences that you have. And so you just have these very varied ideas. And, um, you know, for the, the only thing that you generally know, right, if you're an immigrant and you come here is that, you know, well, you need education, right? This country, you need education to, to do well. And so that's why people just pour everything into that. It's, uh, it's not some cultural thing where it's like education is important. It's, it's that like, well, we don't know how else to succeed in America. That's the only thing that we know. Yeah. We're talking with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for the New York Times opinion page and New York Times magazine about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. And we want to hear from you. How do you see assimilation playing out kind of in your own life? Do you feel assimilated? Do you feel like it happened to you? If you're the child of immigrants, what was their dream for you? And of course, do you have a bone to pick with Jay Caspian Kang? Here's your chance. He claims he likes to debate. Uh, give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jay Caspian Kang, newish Berkeley resident, staff writer for the New York Times opinion page and New York Times magazine. We're talking about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. So you wrote this book to provoke a different kind of discussion than what you were seeing. What were you like writing against in the modern discourse? Well, you know, uh, I had been thinking about, I've been writing about sort of Asian American things for about 10 years, right? Um, And uh, I had written a series of articles about, um, you know, one of them was about some fraternity brothers at Baruch College in New York City, who were all from Queens, they're all from, uh, you know, sort of immigrant enclaves, and they had done a fraternity hazing ritual that ended up with a kid who died, 
Um, and then I wrote a piece about, uh, you know, the Harvard affirmative action case. And in all of that reporting, you know, like I spent a lot of time in, in parts of Queens and Brooklyn that were heavily Asian and not particularly wealthy, right? Actually quite poor. And, you know, it, it occurred to me that uh, during all this time that, that, you know, there's such an imbalance of stories about and the way that we talk about Asian Americans uh, towards people like myself, right, who well-educated family came over, certainly struggled quite a bit at the beginning, but eventually hit a upwardly mobile track. And then, you know, their children go to college and then their children end up doing okay in the world. Um, and that there needed to be some sort of intervention or else that we would not have any sort of coherent politics, right? Like uh, out, even, you know, outside of kids in Flushing and, and, uh, and in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, there's so many communities of Asian Americans and uh, all over the, the country itself that, that, that have a completely different set of priorities, right? A different way of talking about themselves, a different way of identifying themselves. Most don't even call themselves Asian Americans unless like they're filling out a survey or filling out some sort of census information. And so, um, yeah, the book is meant to be an intervention that we should, you know, either expand the category, uh, we should either refocus the category or we should just get rid of it altogether because like, you know, like what, what, what does it really mean? You know, like, uh, like, um, you know, South Asian people, for example, right? Uh, people from India, people from Pakistan, people from uh, Bangladesh, like, uh, you know, sometimes they're Asian Americans, sometimes they're not. If you walked up to somebody on the street and you said, what is an Asian American? I was standing there, they would point to me, you know, or if I was standing there with some of my friends who are South Asian, I'd say, which one of us is Asian? I bet 90% of them would, would point to me right now. That doesn't mean that that's right or wrong or whatever, but right. Like the, 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 it's just to prove that the, the, the label is just so amorphous and, and, and so contextualized in that, you know, it, it ultimately ends up being almost meaningless after a while. So I'm curious, why didn't you write the book? about those people, Asian Americans, who don't have money? Like, why not center the book there? Well, you know, I am a firm believer in journalism, but I do not, and as such, I do not believe in this sort of idea of uh, giving voice to the voiceless all the time, right? Like, I was not trying to write a savage inequalities type of book, right? Um, where, because I, I assume, you know, I imagine that most people actually do instinctively know that, that there are poor Asians, right? Like, you know, like who delivers your food if you live in New York City, right? Like uh, in, in the Bay Area, right? Like when you go down to Chinatowns, right? If you drive down through parts of uh, San Francisco, right? Like you see poor Asian people, right? And they're generally invisible. And so, um, you know, the, the book is not meant to be uh, a validation that those people exist. I, in fact, think that type of thinking is quite, quite, quite corny you know like just being like hey you know here i am i am presenting these stories to you like i i don't think that that is a good way to go about it at all you know mm -hmm. I, I think that we should we should understand that we all know that this is true you know and the book is really addressed to you know people um it is meant to be a wake-up call for people like myself right and not just within the asian american community right this is, this is any community i think has these issues right i, I talked to um, yesterday, I talked. I did an interview with a with a black host, and he was talking about how those same hey. having the oh, yeah. struggles of of people um, that all of that is you know that's true in that community. I'm sure Alexis is true in the Latin community as well, right? Sure. So um, I, I think that that as an intervention, 
right? That, that, that is, that, that is the purpose of the book, right? It is not, it is not a, a book of, Hey, let's, let's get everyone, you know, here, here are some stories of these people. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of your key mentors in life was, uh, Noel Ignatieff, uh, this right. radical organizer, scholar, you know, and in his books, you know, race trader, how the Irish became white. It was, it's really about, you know, building this cross racial class solidarity, but you seem to be arguing in this book for building cross-class racial solidarity. Is that kind of the intervention? Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, uh, Noel was a uh, you know, friend and mentor. He was my history professor when I was a freshman in college. And, you know, um, uh, his idea was, you know, like there must be some sort of way in which like, you can build politics around the working class that will allow them to you know, at the time when he was working in factories, it was, you know, 1950s, 1960s, um, you know, there was great segregation in both the unions there and also on the factory floors. And the idea was like, can we see that our struggles are shared, right? And how do we see that our struggles are shared? And I think that right now what we have in America is that we have a lot of sort of, I, I would not use this term, but I think this is what he would say. It's like a lot of bourgeois identity politics, right? We have... We have, like I said before, the concerns of a of a upper upperly mobile middle class, upper middle class group of minorities who sort of come out and they say, "This is what's important for our group, right?" So it's like, is it like who won an Oscar this year, right? Like how many how many people of X group won an Oscar? Or you know, for Asian Americans, it's like why is Scarlett Johansson in in all these movies playing playing Asian characters? Or it's like. I have all these microaggressions in the corporate workspace, right? That's sort of the face, the mainstream face of Asian American politics. I don't think that there's any pathway for solidarity in those types of concerns because it, first of all, it takes out almost everybody who's poor, right? Which is much more people than people who are rich, right? That's just the structure of America. But also, I don't think that it's a particularly sympathetic way of going about politics, right? Like I, as an Asian American who, you know, has some proximity to Hollywood. Like, I don't care what movie Scarlett Johansson is, is it, you know, my parents don't care. You know, my sister doesn't care. I don't many, pe- I don't know many people who do care. And so, uh, and yet the people who do care seem to be the sort of, you know, loudest voice in these, in each of these groups. And so um, is there a way to abandon that? Is there a way to sort of focus the, the, the politics around things that people do care about, right? Like, like people who are suffering, like people who have lost their homes, like people who are homeless, people who, these are all things that, you know, people can sort of get outside of themselves and, and put some political energy into. And since every one of our groups has, you know, some people who are suffering, right? Uh, people, who, people who are poor, then I think those are much more uh, valuable ways of, of looking at solidarity than like trying to do this, uh, you know, like identity identity thing where where it's so much focused on on people who have already sort of made it in america let's bring in makila from berkeley welcome to the show hi thank you for having me yeah thanks for joining us so i'm calling because i'm also an east coast transplant and i grew up in a house where my parents really instilled in my sister and i that if we are as american as possible we will fit in and succeed Right. And it was the whole, you know, myth of the melting pot sort of thing. You know, they were part of that first wave of immigrants coming to the States. And um, so we did it right. Like we didn't eat with Mm -hmm. our hands. We're Indian. (laughs) And we, um, you know, and we spoke English at home exclusively. And Mm -hmm. my parents were constantly trying to push us to have an American accent. And, 
you know, we were relatively successful with that. I mean, they themselves were kind of, we were kind of poor growing up. Um, and then I moved out here and I met sort of that next wave of Asians and discovered that I just didn't fit in. So, you know, the idea of, of trying to, you know, be a cohesive Asian American political base gets so complicated when you start to look at the different waves of immigrants that come to the States and the different lessons that we learn. Right. When I was growing up, you know, Mississippi Masala was like this big movie and I happened to have a black boyfriend at the time and people would yell Mississippi Masala. And meanwhile, you know, at home, my parents were like, I don't think you should. Da, 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 da. So, you know, it's just, it's a, you know, there's like all this, like inside the home, outside the home, within the community, outside the community. And there's so much discomfort that it, you know, everybody is so in it that it's really hard to kind of look beyond that and say, oh, what's really happening? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times also when you don't have success at work, there's this feeling for that first wave that, oh, what did I do wrong? You know, and then someone points out, well, maybe because they're racist. And you're like, what? No, I, but I'm American. <laughs> yeah, that's happened to me. Yeah. Michaela, <laughs> th- thank you so much for, uh, for that. I, I mean, I think, Jay, I think she kind of like, teed you up. I mean, this is like, this This is the exact complex what? of issues that you're trying to kind of like pull apart, right? Right. What a wonderful call. I mean, you know, I I hope, you know, I don't mean to plug this just this way, but, you know, I, I have found that in the week that the book has been out, the most sort of heartfelt and the most, uh, the most, and honestly, the most reactions I've gotten are from South Asian people, you know, who, um, which is interesting because the book generally focuses on East Asian people and um, I, I think that it is, you know, I think that the way I grew up in a very similar way to, to Makila, it's, uh, you know, my parents were based, I grew up speaking Korean because my parents didn't speak much English, but then by the time I was eight or nine years old, it was just like English only, right? Um, it was, we lived in North Carolina. So, you know, at the time it was not really a hotbed of Asian American, of Asian American people there. So, um, you know, like, and then, and then you do sort of come across new people. Like I feel this, you know, I've, in the book, I write about this cause I, you know, I walking around Berkeley when I moved here about two years ago and, you know, I was like, wow, there's so many Asian kids on campus, you know, and it, it, like you, you, I'm 41 years old, you know, you have, you have these different types of revelations all the time. And then you feel sort of embarrassed by it, right? Because you're just like, well, why wouldn't I know that this is true, right? Um, and that's just part of just growing up as like a, as a minority in America is that you sort of learn things at different paces and all the information isn't available to you. But, you know, the, to address the second part of it, um, that sort of chaos, right? That sort of confusion, that sort of like, there are no real connections, even not just between me, you know, like uh, me and, 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 and poor immigrants or me and me and, you know, South Asian people or, or me and people from like, uh, you know, from, from, you know, the Lao population, let's say here in, uh, in the East Bay, right, that, that we don't speak the common language, we don't have common foods, we don't have, you know, we don't have sort of, we have different class structures, like that, that's, that, that's all true, right, we have a chaos in Asian America. And my argument, you know, is basically that that we need to base, you know, like we need to we need to understand that this is true. We need to admit that this is true. We need to stop trying to build these sorts of identities around and say that we all are included in it because we aren't, you know, like, like if, if we any type of Asian American 
identity that you want to build is going to exclude 90% of Asian Americans. And is that really a good way to go about it? Like, should we keep trying? That's a, you know, it's a question that I bring up in the book. Um, I mean, I guess the one answer to that would be though, right. That there is just, you know, economically many Asian American immigrants have done well. Like, you know, look at even the 20th percentile. It's still Asian Americans are doing a lot better than, than quote unquote Hispanic people or black people. And yet we also know that racism persists, just like, you know, Makila was saying on the on the call. And so it, it, what's hard is this sort of identity almost has to be formed as a, a counterbalance to the sort of white culture kind of coming at you. Right. I mean, that also creates the sort of these strange shapes to this to this identity. No. Yes. I you know, I'm not a person you know, I'm not a class reductionist. Right. Um, I think sometimes I get accused of being such, but I am not, you know, like I am not somebody who believes that all identity politics should be like, you know, uh, struck down and banned by law or something like that, right? Like, I understand that people identify themselves in groups, right? And that in America, in large part, those groups are going to be racialized because that's the country that we live in, right? And so part of the book is grappling with this because, you know, I do think the term is so useless. I do think it's so exclusive. And yet I think it's so personal to people, right? Like it's how they identify with themselves and part of their life's journey is trying to figure out if they fit in this group or not. And I don't, I don't begrudge anyone for that process. I, I went through it myself. You know, I think I went through it quite badly actually compared to some other people. So I can't even judge people who I think went through it badly. You know, like I've, maybe I went through it the worst of anybody, which is maybe why I you know, wrote this book. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that there, you know, the, my hope is that, that if we do look at class more, Right. If we do look at different ways of immigration, if we do say, hey, these people came over in this 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 uh, in this era and they came over from this country and this is what the reason why they came over. And these people came from the same country 50 years later and they have a completely uh, from a completely different province and they have a completely different set of politics. We can actually get a much more accurate appraisal of what Asian America is. Right. Like we and we can actually get a much more specific type of politics if we decide to engage in, in the type of politics around Asian America. And right now, there's just, it's just so blanketed, you know, it, it, it's so all encompassing and it's so confusing that I just don't know, like, I, I just don't know where it goes at this point. Yeah. We're talking with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for the New York Times opinion page and New York Times magazine about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. And we'd like to hear from you. If if you have heritage in Asia, how do you feel about the term Asian American? Do you feel like it applies to you? Does it fit? As Jay just said, you know, as in your life journey, have you found that you actually fit into this group? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Want to add Sydney from Oakland into our conversation? Welcome to the show, Sydney. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, we sure can. Go ahead. Great. Um, I just wanted to say, Jay, I read the book. I really love it. Um, it rang very, very true to me, and I've been uh, a fierce uh, advocate for the book um, among my friends and colleagues. Thank um, you, Sydney. Are you Sydney? Are you Korean? No, I'm Viet. I'm Viet ah, and Laotian. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for reading. Yeah. And what yeah, were you so going to say? You, to, yeah, you know, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I just want to you know quickly give some background for myself. Um, you know, I I my parents came here in the eighties nineties. Um, came 
uh, you know, escaped the violence in Laos um, in the 60s, went to a refugee camp in Thailand, moved to France and stayed there until the 80s. And so my, you know, my, my childhood in America um, after that point uh, was among all other Asians. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, my high school was 80% Asian. My town is the most Asian city in America, like right. currently. Um, and so the, the things that you talk about, this um, sort of otherized or self-otherized uh, identity of Asian America, that was never really present for me growing up. Like I never really understood those things outside of the sort of quote, uh, weak cultural signifiers that you talk about in the book, mm-hmm. drinking boba, uh, listening to, you know, um, Vietnamese music for my parents, going to temple, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it was never like a political identity. And so, you know, you talk about sometimes that you were never really racialized until you met, you know, um, like a black person. Uh, and uh, you know, not in a flippant way, but you know, you, the the racial reality of America never came to you until you really um, faced it face to face in stark terms. And for me, um, the sort of projections, the um, forcedness of the Asian American identity as this internally inherent political subject it's totally incoherent for me because i never had to face those racial realities growing up wait hey sydney hang hang with us we're gonna have to go into the break but hang with us we're talking with jay caspian kang staff writer for the new york times opinion page and new york times magazine about his new book the loneliest americans i'm alexis madrigal we'll be back with more forum right after the break This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been talking with listener Sydney from Oakland, as well as with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for the New York Times opinion page in New York Times Magazine, about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. And uh, Jay, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to something that Sydney said, which was about sort of how you became racialized as right. a as a small child, like how you came into kind of racial consciousness. I guess I would say. Well, um, you know, I think that as a child, I had some understanding that I was not white 
right? But it never crossed my mind because my parents were, as I said, so fully assimilationist. And there was this great contradiction that I think a lot of people will identify with if they grew up in immigrant households. Or it's just like, okay, we speak Korean at home. <laughs> my parents don't speak much English, right? But um, their message to, to me is like, none of this matters, you know, <laughs> like, you're just as American as everybody else. And, you know, you believe it because you're a kid, right? And, you know, uh, uh, this is not everybody grew up this way, right? But I certainly grew up this way. I think a lot of people will identify with this. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day where, um, you know, the, I remember that by the, when I was six or seven years old, we moved to the suburbs for a little bit in Boston and, um, one of my first real clear memories was standing at the bus circle and seeing the Metco bus come up, right? Metco was the busing program in, in Boston. And, um, you know, seeing black students get off the bus and, and, um, you know, I, it was, it, I, I, you know, I remember it even right now, like, you know, some sort of Proustian moment, I guess, but like, it's flying back to me and it's, you know, like, I, I just remember thinking at that time, right. That, that maybe I am not, like everyone else at this school, but I am also not those people, right? And that that is just a profound experience, you know. Like it, 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 it. it first of all, it, it's like, well, I'm not either, right? So what, what side am I going to choose? And at the age of six, you don't really think, you know, you're like, well, I don't know, I'm six, you know. But the thought does happen, and it forms, you know, it, for me at least, it, it formed basically everything that I thought, right? And it yeah. continued when we moved to North Carolina, where at the time there were almost no Asian families in our town, but there are a lot of Black families as well, um, and then there are a lot of white families, and and uh, that, you know that sort of idea where where you where you start to try and figure out where that is, right? Um, I don't know. I think it's a process that all all immigrants go through. You know, do you ever feel jealous of people like Sydney who grew up in heavily Asian communities? I mean, we moved from like a super Mexican part of L.A. when I was a kid, a town called Silmar, to like a totally right. white place. And I oftentimes wish we'd stayed. You know, yeah. I, I think it would have been culturally helpful for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. You know, one of the one of the things that people, you know, sometimes accuse me of is being like self-hating, you know, and then they say, well, I grew up in an enclave around all Asian people. We had a wonderful time. And um, you know, I don't have all these hangups that this guy has. And, you know, to them, I just say, yeah, that's probably true. You know, um, it's a strange thing to like make fun of someone about, you know, like, uh, you know, oh, you're all messed up and like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty messed up. <laughs> all of this, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> um, try to try to write something about it, but you, know, you don't have to be mean to me about it. Like, um, but yeah, you know, I think that the kids who grew up in those types of enclaves definitely, have a different type of uh not I don't think they have a different conception of what Asian American is necessarily, but they certainly have a different, you know, I don't think they're yeah, that they 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 may many of them may be spared from, you know, a lot of the neurosis that that those of us who grew up like me and you go through, you know. <laughs> Let's bring in Joseph from Sacramento. <laughs> hey Joseph. Hello, uh this is actually uh Joseph from the Bay Area, uh originally from um San Jose. Oh, hey. Uh, okay. Joseph from San Jose. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Um, Filipino Americans, you know, that term is, is it interesting. Um, we had more affinity with the blacks and the Latinos coming up in San Jose in the 70s. Right. Um, you know, I think because of our colonial relationship with, with Spain and, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, my peers, we were all uh, military brats. You know, we our fathers immigrated to the U.S. via the U.S. 
uh, military service. Hmm. And it's interesting, in high school, you had the Asian club, and then we had our own club. We had the Filipino Students Association, and it confused everybody. <laughs> they said, why are you not with the, the Chinese and the, uh, the Japanese? Hmm. You know, and we would do this thing, we said, we're Pacific Islanders. You know, like we had no sense of geography. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we were, we, we, we were very, very chauvinistic about, about this idea of being Filipino. Right. You know, and we didn't really connect with the uh, the other Asians. And I think a lot of it was a a sort of this 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 uh, this class distinction with with, with 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 some of the Filipinos versus the the other Asians. Huh. You know, a lot of us came from very, you know, working class type uh uh, situations, you know, uh, I'd have to say that the U.S. military service is was a blue collar organization in the seventies. You know, yeah. you you didn't make a lot of money being a being being a being a military man. You know, so Joseph, as time went on, can I ask you how you've ended up identifying? Have you over time been like, all right, fine, I'm Asian American, or have you stuck? No, I'm Filipino American. Uh, I think I'm I'm pretty much still, you know. Uh, holding on to that to that Filipino American thing, but I will I, I will have to say though the uh, the current generation they're a little bit more uh, you know they 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 tend to to connect to that particular identity, but there's a cost to that. I would say the cost of that is when you're thrown into this uh, Asian American box. There's some positives, but there's also some negatives. Like currently, you know, you have the whole uh, Asian hate thing. Yeah. There was a time when when Filipinos they didn't touch us because because I'm not trying to brag but they knew that they, we we were the Asians you didn't mess with okay but then you know now it's like it, it it seems like there's this mentality that 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 people can harass Asians in general with, with impunity yeah but there was a time you know we 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 tended to put it you know put it all on 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 the line, man, and and and, and you know, we, we we paid heavily for it. This 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 maybe this this sort of machismo thing that we inherited, maybe from the Spanish, or maybe it's just from our cultural heritage of, of like just easily being offended. And and we see we, we we saw how we 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 paid for it. We paid for it. You know, I got friends who who ended up in juvenile hall in the system in the penitentiary. That's just. Yeah. Because we wanted to be, you know, badasses. Well, thank you, Joseph, for that. Jay, I wanted to give you a chance. We've had some uh, comments, too, of at people asking, you know, how should you approach this current wave of anti-Asian violence? Well, you know, uh, I think that, um, I don't know. You know, I, I think that, that people organizing is great, you know, and I, I think that people people trying to protect themselves is is natural, right? And I think that that raising awareness is great. I mean all that sincerely, right? Um, I think that, you know, what we should, I think it's another example, though, where, you know, we need to talk about what actually is happening most of these places, right? Like, we need to talk about who the people are who, who are the victims of some of this violence, right? So, um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't sort of bring it back into a broad Asian American mainstream politics. Like, so one of the examples that I write about um, in I think the essay that I wrote for the New York Times Magazine is that after the Georgia spa murders, right, um, this, this horrible, this horrible event, 
um, two days later, like if you went on, if you go to, if you go through the news, if you, if you, there's, there's just testimonials of Asian American people like me, you know, talking about the time when somebody mistook me for a delivery driver or something like that. Right. Or, or I feel bad because I changed my name, you know, or my, I anglicized my name from like young Jet to Jay. Right. I didn't say any of this stuff, but you know, this is a sort of temperature that was out there at the time. And, you know, what was erased was like all of the specific things that put those women in such a precarious place. And you can go all the way back to imperialism to talk about that. Right. But you can also just specifically talk about the conditions of of poverty and of, of, of sex work, all these different things that 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 put those people in, the pla- in, in those places. Those things were there. Right. But they were drowned out once again by the concerns of uh, upwardly mobile, middle, upper middle class, professional class of Asian Americans who, for some reason, you know, take every opportunity to turn every type of tragedy into into something about them, right? It's it, like, you know, just as well as I do, it's like, half of this stuff ends up being about like uh, positioning within the media, right? Like, which is like the least important thing, you know, uh, at that time. And so um, I don't know, I, I think that 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 we should do things like, you know, quote, raise awareness, whatever that term means, but we should raise awareness about the actual about the actual thing you know we shouldn't raise awareness about asian america as an idea that's like translated by by a bunch of uh cultural commenters because it's like it, that that that's useless it's almost disrespectful to the people who died you know a couple of uh comments uh, uh not quite on this but around this topic jackie writes my observation with caucasian friends of mine is the root of asian racism uh, is that they view the various peoples that are encompassed as Asian as economic threats because many have been successful in our society. Of course, that's due to hard work and in many cases a good education, but these whites feel threatened. Another listener tweets, part of the reason I see a focus on those bourgeois concerns like microaggressions is that that's all I see other more visible minorities doing. I don't see any other examples or pathways to visibility and acceptance. You have a perspective as very much an outsider. I do wonder if in parts of California where there are significant populations of East Asians who don't grow up as outsiders, uh, what that's going to look like or if it's going to look different. Um, well, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that the commenter is correct, right, that um, in a lot of ways, which is that uh, it was something that we talked about before, which is that, like, if you look at racial discourse right now in the in at not not in small spaces but overall like a mainstream type of racial discourse it is about diversity and inclusion right it is about diversity in workplaces right um uh, speaking outside of like the anti you know the the black lives matter and the the anti-police violence organizing which is very uh you know which obviously is a large part of this but but i'm talking about identity here right and asian americans latino americans it's all it's all those types of questions. And so I don't, I don't begrudge people. I don't blame people who, who, who process their politics this way. I think the commenter is correct. Like this is the model that we've been given. And so, you know, what the book tries to say uh, is, Hey, what if we, what if we just didn't do this? (laughs) (laughs) Like, what if we didn't, you know, like what, what if we tried something else? What if we expanded political possibility? Um, And that, that, that's something I feel, you know, I feel very passionately about. So um, Let's bring in Catherine from Woodside. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Um, So I'm Chinese-American. I'm an immigrant, and I have children that are adopted. Um, My daughter is biracial, African-American, and white, and my son is African-American. So I haven't read Jay's book, but I intend to, and I read his article in The Times, 
And he talked about white adjacency with the Asian American community. And I, I know for a fact, you know, my children's um, um, elementary school, they're full of biracial children who are half Asian and half white, but there are very few Asian, half Asian and half African American children. And I'm very interested in his comment about the racism that is inherent in the Asian community towards uh, African Americans. Um, right. I'll take my comment off the air. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Right. And I'm sure as Catherine knows, it's not just uh, African Americans, black people. It's also, you know, it's intensified in a lot of ways when when the people are biracial, you know, when when they are half when they are half black and half Asian. So, um, you know, this is true in Korea, right, where uh, the children of, you know, generally GIs who are like this, this might have been a generation before, but like uh, people who are born in Korea are half black, you know, they they they, they suffer a form of racism that I, I think would be shocking even to people here in America um, and discrimination. And that does transfer over because, you know, same people are here in America, right? Like those people were raised in, in Korea. And so um, in terms of, 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 you know, uh, I, and I think that it is a, I think that it's something that needs to be like, I don't think that it needs to be something that is only discussed, right? Like, cause like that's sort of the, that's the that's the sort of tagline that happens right now, which is that we need to talk about anti-blackness in the Asian American community. And, you know, I don't I've never really understood what that means. You know, <laughs> like just go home and talk to your parents and say, hey, like, don't do this. Right. Like, I, I think that there are better possibilities to address that. And, you know, one of them is to sort of say, like, what what things do we all have in common? Like, what are our shared struggles? Right. Like, how, how do we identify with one another? And 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 you know, like that, that sort of work is just not done. Like we almost assume that there are no commonalities, right? We almost assume that there are no pathways to solidarity and that the only thing that matters is for the person to stop saying racist things, right? Like, I don't know. I find that such a limiting way to think about it. And, and, but I do think that it is sort of the mainstream way to think about it right now. And, and, you know, like, I, I just think it's bad. You know, I think it's bad. <laughs> it's all John, John from San Francisco. <laughs> welcome to the call. We got lots of people running through now. John from San Francisco. Yeah. Welcome. Hi, John. Uh, yeah. Um, my question is um, f- for, uh, for Koreans who, who immigrated here, like in the, my parents uh, immigrated here in 1956 and, the whole assimilation process, I mean, was like what Akila says. Uh, but the newer ones who came here after 1970s, <clears throat> I think, are causing sort of a problem of not assimilating by not assimilating. And I just wanted to hear if he had any comments about that. Well, I. I think I know what you're, t- I don't think that not assimilating is a problem. I'll just say that first, right? I don't think that that's like a, I don't think that that's like a moral problem in any sort of way, but I do agree that there, that po- that if you came in, if your parents came in 1956, uh, I am sure that you're one of the only Korean people that you knew because there weren't that many Korean people here in the country at the time. Um, like I said, most came post 1965. Uh, in terms of, you know, not assimilating, it's true. You know, like uh, I have aunts who, who, moved to the United States in the 1970s, right? They lived their entire lives in Koreatown and they barely speak English, right? They've been here, I don't know, how many years is that? Like 50 years or something like that, right? Most of their lives have been spent here in the United States and yet 
they do not pick up, uh, you know, they, they're not functional English speakers in any sort of way. But um, I think that's even more reason why, uh, you know, the category doesn't quite make sense, because I think it assumes, you know, like people like me or John, who, you know, speak English, go about our lives in America um, and, and, and have, you know, are racialized in a type of way, but still are participating in a sort of legible form of Americanness, uh, Americanism or Americanness, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think for the for many, many, many people, especially recent immigrants, that's just not true. And I, I think that's you know even more reason why the label is incoherent. The last question, you know, uh, you ever daydream about what it would have been like if your family had moved back to Korea after they got educated here in the states? Yeah, yeah, I think about it a lot. Um, you know, I think about it every time I watch a movie or Korean drama or, um, you know, every time I go back to Korea and, you know, I see what it's like when my parents, you know, my parents grew up in a war zone, they're refugees from North Korea. You know, they showed me photos of what the, what the river looked like that runs through Seoul when they were children. It was, you know, shacks by a river, you know, you go to Korea now, (laughs) it's not that, you know? Um, And yeah, I, I I do think about it, but you know, I, there's, there's never a sense of regret for me, right? Like, um, I, I, you know, there's, there are many ways in which I think my upbringing has made me into like a, you know, like a, a person who is, you know, not particularly well in a lot of ways, but I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know, and it's, it's one of the anxieties that I feel with my, with my own child where, you know, I, I wonder if she will go through all the things that I went through that sort of formed who I am in some ways, you know, made me maybe sometimes unpleasant to be around <laughs> but but that that's me you know um and i you know like i wonder if she growing up in here in the bay area with a lot of asian and people around her you know or even you know in a in a way in which like she would will be far more privileged than i was when i was growing up if she'll go through those things and there's part of me that that hopes that she does but then there's also part of me that kind of understands that she won't We've been talking with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for the New York Times Opinion Page and New York Times Magazine, about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, 
the political scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything, from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.